Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus on the emotional connection more than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome, listeners, to Judgment Day. This mini-sode of the Feelin' Film Podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, Cyberdyne Systems. I'm Aaron, and with me is my co-host, Patch. Hey, everyone. For the month of May, we had our Patreon donors vote on a list of films that made us want to celebrate Mother's Day, and the love for Sarah Connor came through loud and clear. If you'd like to be a part of future monthly donor pick episode voting, you can participate for supporting us with as little as $1 a month. Just check out patreon.com slash film for a list of options and rewards. Now, Patrick, we're going to get right into this movie, but first, spoiler warning, yeah, I know it's like 30 years old, but uh, you never know. Maybe someone hasn't seen it yet, and if they haven't, we don't want to spoil it for them because it is a very good movie, and it's worth finding out what happens on your own for the first time. So, turn away now if you haven't seen Terminator 2 Judgment Day, smack yourself in the face for being dumb, and go rent it. Patrick, what's your one-word takeaway? Let's start with that. Well, it's technically a two-word takeaway, but it's there's an article in front of it, so we'll just go ahead and call it one. It's The Future. Close <laughs> enough. I'll give you that. Okay. I was thinking about what word I could use to sum up my movie experience is our one-word takeaway definition. I started thinking about, I guess when you were going through on social media, talking about Cameron in general, I look at him and I see a lot of like negativity around him right now especially with this avatars two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, you know, however many sequels he's going to supposedly be creating. And some of the PR stuff that people have not been very excited about or very happy with. In other words, people just don't like James Cameron right now for X reason or Y reason. But I don't think any of those reasons have to do with his ability to tell stories. And in the midst of this general stigma as a human being, we really do forget how great Cameron can be as both a writer and a visual storyteller. And you watch a movie like this in 2018. I mean, this thing is almost 30 years old. And I feel like I'm watching it as if it could exist today. And it's not just because the visuals are like stunning or out of this world, but it's because this whole package of the movie itself, along with what I consider not heavy handed CG, <laughs> purposeful CG, used it as a way to craft this really incredible movie. And it says so much about this talent that Cameron has in the director's chair that I think we forget about. I mean, he was really the king of the 90s when it came to the movies that he was creating. And there's also something to be said about the power of good storytelling when it comes to this movie as a sequel. We're talking not about Terminator. We're talking about Terminator 2. This is the first entrance that I got into the Terminator franchise. And honestly... It's my favorite. I think it stands above and beyond any of the other installments. For whatever criticism or compliments you can give them, Terminator 2 does something that I think a lot of sequels don't do, is it doesn't have to rely on its predecessor to be really good. Okay, it's, It is a continuation of a story, but this was the first Terminator that I watched and I didn't feel lost. I didn't feel like I was getting something of a partial story. I felt like I was picking up with some general exposition on what happened in the first film without needing to see it. And at the same time, it kind of reminds me of my experience with something like the Godfather and its sequel, like Godfather two is 
by far my favorite of the two, but it is only that much better because the first one exists. Like, I don't think I could enjoy the second one without the first one being present as well. Terminator 2 is different for me. I can watch it without even having seen the first one or having watched the subsequent ones that follow it. It is both a great standalone feature as well as a perfect follow along to the very first film. And I think you don't see a lot of sequels that do this. So for me, I think we're living in a world where that's not as successful. And I'm grateful that we have a director like Cameron and a storyteller like Cameron, who's able to basically craft this future within the world of Terminator, but also craft the future in this ability to make good movies and pioneer something that we hopefully are seeing more of now. Yeah, I guess we will find out eventually how that works with Avatar. For mine, you know, my one word takeaway, I debated multiple times whether or not to go with this and ultimately I just had to, is badass. And that's because there's a special feeling that comes around every so often when a film hits you just right. It's not the feeling where a film provides just an incredible experience or even the one where you kind of know a movie will become a favorite that you're going to watch over and over and over. I would think Ready Player One is something that would fall in that category for me. It's a blend of both. And I think it's a realization for me that I was watching something unlike anything else, that all-timer label. This was my first time seeing T2 as an adult, and I hadn't seen it in 20 years, probably. And I was blown away. I could not believe that James Cameron made this movie when he did. And I truly felt like he got it from the future, just like the plot line of his movies. It has badass action. It has badass smart sci-fi concept. It has a badass heroine and a hero and a villain. And on top of all of that, it's incredibly emotionally moving. And it also has badass theme music. So, yes, badass. And I mean it. Now, I also think it's badass, Patrick, because of how great of a sequel it is. And I love that you mentioned that right off the bat, because I wanted to briefly talk about that, how Cameron is kind of the master at this. If we throw out Piranha 2, I had forgotten that he directed that movie until someone brought it to my attention, but... It was his first ever feature film, and he also was co-directing it, so I don't really count that. But we're talking two of the greatest sequels ever, both of them sci-fi action, right? Aliens and T2. So I don't know why people are worried about Avatar. <laughs> I really don't. I'm with you 100%. I think Cameron's known ego and mouth have kind of pushed him away from a fan base a lot and people are using that to judge the filmmaker when in reality his movies those speak for him themselves yeah i absolutely agree and i think when you have a guy like cameron who has done so well at follow-up films in a franchise one of the things that i initially was worried about or would be worried about is time you know when you have a movie that's successful like avatar and you're waiting, I don't know, however many years it is before you bring about a sequel. There's the tendency to lose momentum 
you know, you're losing your audience of going, look, we're living in that. And, and there may be some legitimacy to that because we're living in the MCU's world right now. I mean, this is kind of the, the big cinematic world that, that we are playing around in. And Cameron's going to attempt to take us back to this fantasy world that he introduced us to in the infancy stages of 3D. The thing is, though, we look at Terminator and we look at Terminator 2 and there was a serious gap of like six years when those movies were, were released. And I read somewhere that Terminator 2, I believe, grossed more total in three days than the original Terminator did in its entire theatrical run. Yeah. So I, surprise I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know why that is. I think it's obviously a combination of trusting in Cameron. He had just released the abyss two years before, which was pretty fantastic. And he had had up to that point, a pretty good track record of quality movies. So you add that to, I love for the Terminator franchise and Arnold Schwarzenegger being one of the biggest action stars at the time, you're going to get a nice <laughs> return on your investment. And so, but I think as a whole Terminator two does something that a lot of movies don't do is it, it continues to hold up. It continues to be a relevant story that when we look at the pieces and parts of it, which we can't talk about everything, obviously there's just a lot there, but some of the major themes still hold water today. And I'm glad they do because as my son gets older, one of the big themes in this, I want him to embrace when he's old enough to experience this. And I feel confident saying this is a movie I think he would enjoy, not only for the themes, but also for the spectacle. I don't feel like it's a cheesy movie from the 90s. I feel like it's a, wow, this is a, this is, this is a groundbreaking movie that still you know, holds up today. I think it's a great idea, and I definitely want to you know, let my son watch this and the first one as well. I rewatched the first one before I watched this and, you know, having not seen it in forever, it was pretty different also, but to kind of watch the progression of Arnold going through an entire movie as a villain and then immediately the next day put on T2 and see that him coming back as the hero, it was an enhancement for me of both noticing Cameron's skill in the writing and in the, in the direction, in the way that the story unfolds, but specifically in Sarah Connor's arc for me, it really stood out to watch her go from the way she was to the way she became in T2. And it does, it, it progresses that character in a way that so many sequels don't do. They just don't. And part of that is the story itself, right? I mean, not all, character arcs are going to be this distinct. And I, and I, I hesitate to try to compare them to anything else specifically because most arcs are very, I don't know, they're kind of at a slope, if you will. This is almost like somebody turning around in a 180 degrees, you know, arc and going the other direction. So it's a lot more jarring of an arc character arc, but yeah, man, it, it is so good. And the visuals themselves i think played a role in that box office change i mean when i put this on i couldn't believe it patrick i just couldn't believe it and yes it's been enhanced it's in blu-ray you and i both watched the uh, special edition the director's edition it's like a two and a half hour cut it's phenomenal but the, the visuals just 
they jump out at you. You're like, holy moly, this looks better than probably 75% of the movies I've watched that are made in 2017 and 2018. It's, it's insane. Um, the CGI is also obviously incredible, right? It's mind blowing. We've all known this. This is referenced and, and memed and everybody knows T1000, the design of this liquid metal terminator. So what makes it different and special when it comes to CGI? Because this is a very CGI action heavy picture. Yes, it slows down and it gives us emotional moments when it needs to, but there's a lot of action going on here. How does it succeed compared to like today's films, right? That are also very heavy CGI. Like why did it work in this one for you? I think that the CG was bonus when it came to a story. If I took Terminator 2 and I took the T-1000 and I made him some more powerful metal, not liquid, just something more, maybe even equal to the T-800, you'd still have that emotionally impactful story intact. The spectacle just wouldn't be as much. You'd probably have more bullets. Maybe you wouldn't. You'd still have more car chases. You'd still have all these other things. And the ability to use these special effects in a way to enhance a scene as opposed to drag it along or navigate it, I think is why James Cameron as a director is so successful because he doesn't rely on, he doesn't rely on effects and spectacle to tell his story. He uses special effects and spectacle to enhance an already great story. And this is kind of where my more critical argument, I joke about it a lot, but this is my more critical argument about Michael Bay comes in is I think that he lives on the other side of that where his stories aren't great, but he overcompensates with really incredible shots and really great effects. But when all you remember is the effects and you don't remember much of the story, you're not doing it right. You're not, you're a successful director financially because you're bringing in money, but the longevity and the quality of your films isn't there because you don't have that quality story. And that's where I think James Cameron really succeeds. He does it in the abyss really well. And he doesn't, and he uses a lot of practical effects there, but he does use some, some early special effects that we see later on in Terminator two, but his stories are what people go see and they're given bonus content with the CGI spectacle. Man, that is really good stuff. I agree with you wholeheartedly. And I think you put it in such a digestible manner that it, it is very well explained. This has those emotional beats. When I thought about this movie as it was starting, what I remembered is the twists and the turns of the plot. And I remembered knowing that John Connor was going to try and convince T-800 to be his dad, essentially, or to not kill. He was going to try to teach him morality. I remembered Sarah Connor being freaked out. I didn't remember all the incredible action scenes until they showed up. And then I was like, oh, yeah, I remember this, too. This was awesome. And I was gawking at them. But you're right. The emotional connection to the story is what resonates much longer after the fact. It's what we remember. Did you like the design of T-1000? Because having watched this back-to-back, -back, right – I see Arnold as the Terminator and he's like 
the big draw. He's all there is in the first movie. It's it's much, much more bare bones. I don't know. You probably haven't rewatched it recently, but it's almost it has a Highlander like look to it. It's not quite as corny. I mean, it's fantastic. I was actually really surprised and enjoyed the heck out of it. It is a great movie. And I think the pair are right up there with almost any pair of films of any, you know, trilogy, the two best. It's like a Batman Begins and Dark Knight type scenario, I think. But man, when that T-1000 portrayed by Robert Patrick, who I know from nothing else as an actor, but he's perfect in this. Like his woodenness, it just totally works, I think. And the design is off the charts. One of the coolest, I I almost feel bad like not thinking of this when we did our top sci-fi aliens lists because I can't believe that I forgot. Like he would maybe be on there almost. He'd probably definitely be top 10. Did you like it? I really did. And I love that while he was definitely the new present under the tree for all of us to, to see, we got to see that, that endoskeleton of the T 800, which I think is just fantastic. Oh, so the, cool. op- the opening scene that leads to the, what is now present day, that close up of that, I guess it's exoskeleton. Endoskeleton. I don't know that skeletal thing. It is just so freaky. It is a scary looking thing and yet it's only the interior part of what Arnold Schwarzenegger's character is. But then we get the T-1000 and I absolutely love the the design. I think that the exposition that he gives John to help us as an audience understand how the T-1000 works is pretty fantastic that he can't mimic a bomb or complex parts, things like that, but he can mimic anything that's pretty much equal in size. Um, I think that there's a, I, I love the thought that goes into that, that he's not just a cool design, that he has purpose and that he does have his limits, which is how he can be taken down. And the way he's taken down, I think exposes the fact that you don't think he can be killed because he's just so amazing, but he, he does have fallibility, even though he's the more advanced of the two Terminators, Robert Patrick, I've really, really enjoyed in his later part of the career, he's in um, he's in a television show that my wife and I watch called Scorpion. Oh, and it's weird. Okay. It's weird to watch him because he's in his like fifties or sixties. Yeah, and he's very. I mean, he's young in Terminator Two, so to see him, he's still just this solid, like, uh, just hardcore detective huh. guy. He's a military dude in this, but you, but he's not as stoic, obviously, because he's not playing a robot, right? But he's still he's still got the acting chops, and I really enjoy him as an actor. Uh, equally as much now in Scorpion as much as I did in NT2, but he was fantastic in this as well. Yeah, I agree. I, I just loved him. And especially, so I will try not to reference it too much, but I I watched the entire five movie. It's not a quadrilogy. It's a quintology, maybe. I don't know what I would call it. Yeah, These words get weird when you start getting bigger. But I watched them all. And the final two, four, and five were a real chore. They are not very good. Terminator 3 is also kind of eh, but has a really interesting ending, and I will talk about that later. But the thing that was interesting to me going through them is seeing the different styles of Terminators that came into being after the fact. And I gotta tell you, this is still the pinnacle. Okay? The the story focusing on one old school first, first model Terminator and then the T-1000 there may be snippets of like, oh, that's a neat, quick moment 
of a robot later in this series, but this is the pinnacle because both of these have personality as well as that cool design. They both individual, like you feel Robert Patrick's villainy coming in, even though he doesn't ever say anything or very rarely says anything. See, this is the interesting thing is, as I mentioned before, this is the first entry I watched. And all I knew about Arnold Schwarzenegger was that he was an action star and that he played a good guy. He always played a good guy in the movies that I saw him in. Running Man, um, now all these other movies I can't remember, <laughs> but he was always the protagonist. And so watching Terminator 2, I was like, oh, cool. We're going to get to see him beat up the bad T-1000. But the thing is, watching it now with the Terminator plot in my head, what a great twist that Cameron puts on this because we, we're not told which one's the bad guy. We're seeing Arnold Schwarzenegger go beat up some bikers to get clothes and leaves the scene. And then we see the T-1000 take on the um, police car, uh, the policeman and becoming a police officer. We don't get a full on understanding of who's the bad guy until what I would consider my connecting point, And that's in the mall when John is got this slow, uh, slow-mo run and we see Schwarzenegger's Terminator come into view and John's like, Oh my gosh, what's happening. And we say, we hear Schwarzenegger go, get down. It's at that moment when we actually realize that he's protecting John and that the T-1000 is actually the one that's trying to kill John. That reveal I think is pretty fantastic. If you have a knowledge of the first movie in your head. Yeah. If not, it's still a great scene, but we don't, it, it has more impact because of that. Yes, for sure. I mean, and that was one of the things I wanted to mention is that in general, as a story, as a sci-fi concept, I called this badass in my opener. It is, man. I forgot. I didn't ever think about it, I guess, in these terms when I would think about what are the greatest sci-fi worlds ever created or scenarios. This is one of the best, and it's it's got time travel, which is so often poorly done or recycled but if you just strictly stick to these first two films before it gets really really convoluted and they start rebooting the timeline to make more movies and think crazy things are happening it's an intriguing intriguing idea and it seems so plausible uh, in many ways right like especially today i mean it was more futuristic then today it's like well you know, Alexa is recording private conversations and putting them on the internet. And okay, what's going to happen when Alexa gets sentient? <laughs> you know, is Alexa going to, are we going to die by Amazon drones? Is that what's going to take us over? Yeah, Terminator 2 gives us probably an unintended peek into what our future was going to become. It's the 1984 of 1991. Very much. And, and, and I think that we don't, we didn't see that in 91 because we saw the immediate future of what 1997, which is when the end of the world was going to happen. But as you mentioned, seeing it now, we're getting a little bit of prophecy in, in some ways from this movie. Well, let's talk about Sarah Connor. Um, so she, before this recent reviewing was not one that I remembered very much. I remember kind of kind of being a little snooty when I would hear her mentioned as a strong female heroine and people would talk about how cool she was. And I was like, eh, I don't remember her being that great. I was wrong. The neat thing for me, seeing her in T1 directly going into T2, as I mentioned, is in T1, she is incredibly kind of, she starts off lively and bouncy and very fun and young. And then 
she progresses into this complete and utter hysterical person. She is in fear. She is confused. She doesn't know what's going on. Here we see her start off much differently. She's got PTSD. She's in a mental hospital. She's understandably a complete mess. Why? Because she has the weight of all human existence on her shoulders. And I got to tell you, that would be pretty heavy. That would be incredibly hard to deal with. And so she has that. And then she transitions into this complete badass over the course of the film. And she goes through this whole emotional arc. And I really connected with her this time around. And I think she's a great example because in the the current world is, you know, dying for new female heroes. We want our Wonder Woman and we want our, you know, Captain Marvels for our young girls to look up to. And I wondered what you thought about this. Would you consider Sarah Connor role model? Would you consider her a good mother? With both movies in mind, probably more so than as T2 independent. This is probably what I considered, again, watching it on its own, not a favorite part for me. Linda Hamilton, I think, is a fantastic actress. And I agree that seeing her as she was and how the PTSD and the trauma of everything she dealt with has made her who she is, I get that. But independently, it was really hard for me to swallow as as a heroine. I think that she is more of an anti-hero because I think she arcs to becoming someone who is genuine and someone who feels more like a heroine. But I, I think for the most part, she feels like an anti-hero to me because her motive is revenge. Her motive is destroy first and ask questions later. And when we look at the, the scene, one of the, actually one of the scenes that I believe was cut from the theatrical release that was thrown back into the director's cut was the, the detachment of the chip from Schwarzenegger's head and her taking it and attempting to try to destroy it. That to me in a microcosm explains who she is. She's someone who she needs to destroy. She needs to destroy. That being said, it makes the ending of the movie that much more impactful and that much more satisfying because I feel like that's her coda. That's her breath. And she's able to kind of, Ah, relax now because she's kind of come to it. Yeah, I I understand what you're saying. I think that it's not about destroying in general. I think it's about protecting. Her method kind of yeah. presents itself in the form of needing to destroy this particular it's person. A reaction. It's a reaction, not a response. Yeah, I, I just – but I feel like you know the, the, the difference here, the first movie, she's relentlessly running, right? Mm-hmm. Here, she is relentlessly trying to protect her son. Mm-hmm. So she has more that she cares about. She has somebody that she actually cares about, but only somewhat, right? Because, And this is what I find intriguing. She clearly doesn't have much of a relationship with him. And it's an interesting type of mother and son thing they have. I mean, he he is not connected to her. He feels distant from her. He thinks she's crazy. It's very, I don't know, it's very powerful to me to watch them interact. And I i never think she gets there. And I, I think that's what makes her character so amazing. She's not ever going to be fully redeemed as a mother. There is this great part of the film that I probably would have called my connecting point, And it all revolves around her. It's when she's talking about 
fatherhood. She's talking about the T-800. And this is where I feel like her character is peaking for me because she says, watching John with the machine, it was suddenly so clear. The Terminator would never stop. It would never leave him. It would never hurt him, never shout at him or get drunk and hit him or say it was too busy to spend time with him. It would always be there and it would die to protect him. Of all the would-be fathers who came and went over the years, this thing, this machine was the only one that measured up. In an insane world, it was the sanest choice. And she just puts her head down and she smiles as she sees the Terminator and John off in the background laughing, right? And of course, it's evoked by that awesome theme music very softly playing in the background, which I love. And I think this is the moment when she rests. And yes, the movie goes on, right? It's actually interrupted by a nightmare and a fantastic scene on the playground where she gets eviscerated and it's a cool skeletal like on fire thing. But I think this is that moment where I felt like, okay, she is really truly looking out for his best interest, but she's also so messed up by this whole situation. She's irrevocably damaged the way that she thinks, because this is not really a sound way to think in my opinion. Do you agree or do you think that she's right? Do you think T-800 could be a father? I think her statement is spot on and it's a fantastic soliloquy, but I think it points more to him and the importance of his character more so than it does her. I don't know that I didn't attach myself to her. I think she's a strong character, but I don't think she's a heroine because I think she's just so messed up. I mean, even you mentioned after that moment of rest, we have this nightmare scenario. And then what does she do? She goes all military covert, gets in that badass station wagon and takes off to take down. That was not in my list of badass things, Patrick. Well, it might as well have been because I mean, she made it. No, she didn't. But then she gets into this mode where she's just like, I've got to destroy it again. It's made up for, for me when, she gets to the house and she has her little breakdown. And I think she and John hug at one point after, you know, she doesn't kill miles and his family. And I say all this to say that it all pays itself off and it's a wonderful thing. I just didn't personally care for her character because I thought she was rightly so very extreme in the way she was thinking, but I can't consider her a heroine. I feel like she's more of a, a liability in the situation of the story but she has redemptive moments maybe that's one i think more so the ending was was the was better for me right but I, I don't think i could see her in a in a heroine type way i mean she had heroine moments but not i, I can't root for her hmm so i i would see a different i guess i would agree that she's not a heroine but i root for her i root for her to have peace that's what i want for sarah okay. connor i want sarah connor to rest that's why I love that moment so much. And it was my connecting point because I feel like for a split second, she gets to see John safe, happy, and she gets to also feel secure in his future, even if it's for this briefest of seconds. And her entire life from the moment that Kyle Reese comes back into it from the future is none of that, right? It's something that nobody will ever experience. And it, fractures her mind and her psyche so so terribly that she can never be a good mother i mean she's so disturbed she thinks that the t800 can be a good father 
which I disagree with. I think that's crazy talk, right? Like, I mean, yeah, he's awesome to look at in that role and it's nice to see it play out, but we know that that's not a long-term solution. Well, what she defines as a father is both in terms of what he won't do and the one thing that she sees as the most valuable, protect and die for, because that's what she does and wants to do for John. If she can't give him anything else, she wants to give John that assurance that she would protect him at all costs and die for him. And so she projects that onto the 800 and couples it with what I see is probably the character traits of every man in her life besides Kyle that probably got drunk, probably hit her, did all these things. You're right. It's, it is not a great way to think of what a good father should be because a father a father's character traits should exist in the positive, not what he won't do, but what he will. And it can't just be, although this is probably the most important thing. It can't just be dying and protecting your child. Yes. Yes. That is the thing, but there are other things that go on. I would die in order to protect my child, but there are other things that I do in the meantime, while I'm not having to die (laughs) for my child that I hope make me a better father. And so, yes, she definitely misses that because Her character is, rightly so, very narrow-minded. She lives in this world of, I failed as a mom. Ticking clock. Exactly. So, again, I understand it. I just don't care for it. Yeah. No, that makes sense. So, one of the things I really also loved about T2 this time around was how Cameron handles exploring the new and the unexplainable. This is that sci-fi thing that really makes him a master of sci-fi along with the abyss and and aliens and avatar some of these things that he i mean i think to the the flora and the fauna in avatar and just getting to see characters interact with those things for the first time and getting to when they connect in avatar via the whatever the antenna or however it is they or that hits their tails right they like stick them together it's really weird but it's it's amazing to see it like from an emotional perspective, from a discovery and like a sense of awe and wonder that that could be a thing. Mm-hmm. And I think he does that here too. And he shows it through the curiosity and the humanity big time of John when he's poking Arnold's skin. He's like trying to see if he's real and he's trying to reconcile with what his mom has told him that this T-800 is Versus what he's seeing with his own eyes. And he says, whoa, this is intense. Get a grip, John. Like he, he can't fathom, right? And, and I think I can put myself in his shoes so easily. And I'd be like, that is exactly how I would react, I think. I, once I accepted it somewhat, like halfway, I'd start wanting to poke and prod and find out, okay, what can this do? And of course, that's what he does, right? He wants to teach it him. He wants it to learn how to feel. And I love that. I love that he wants the T-800 to become emotional. He tells him you can't kill, you know, and there's this big conversation about that. And Arnold's like, well, I, why? (laughs) And he's like, you just can't. And John is so young. He can't even explain it. He can't articulate why this moral reason of not killing exists, but he knows that it does. And, of course, T-800 sees him crying. He says, why do you cry? John says, when it hurts. 
And he says, we have feelings. We hurt. We're afraid. You got to learn this stuff. I'm not kidding. It's important. And so I loved this. I don't know. I just loved the idea of exploring this new cyborg creation and how it could learn humanity, but still also be a robot on a mission. Did you pick up anything like that? Yeah. The one thing that surprised me on this viewing was how much I enjoyed John Connor's character. Because when I watched this, I don't remember how many years ago, I think that the characters themselves, particularly John Connor felt pretty flat to me. And he felt kind of like obnoxious and (laughs) rightly so juvenile. But I think that it was partially because one of the first instances that we are introduced to him is fixing his bike and then robbing an ATM. Things that I feel like maybe in, I don't know how old he is in the movie. I think he's what, 12, 13, maybe I'm not sure. But those moments where he is discovering, where he is being introduced to this thing, this this machine that he is from the future sending back to protect himself and realizes that he can order him around. To me, that feels very much like what a child would do. It's this magic. That I'm an adult from- and I would do that better. Well, because there's... Because there's something pretty amazing about freshness and about newness and about being able to test the limits of what you have when you're being given a new, I mean, it's a new toy. New toy. Yeah. It's exactly what it is. It's a, it's a new toy. And what I like about John's character throughout the back half of the movie in his relationship with the T-800 is they're both learning from each other. I mean, he's, again, I love the scene with him trying to figure out how to reset the chip so that the T-800 can learn. And the T-800 is explaining, this is why I don't do this. And this is, it's, it's very much like a cyborg, but it feels much, it feels a lot like they're both learning from each other. And so I look at John and I see him as not only getting, he gets past the whole, Hey, this is fun. Put your foot down, you know? I don't want to, you know, you're not just my bodyguard. You're not just my robot, but he starts becoming, I don't know if he ever gets to a father figure, but I think he gets to a companion type of relationship. Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't know that I've ever seen, I don't know that I ever saw a moment where the T-800 acted like a father because anybody can protect someone else. A friend can protect a friend. I think because Schwarzenegger is so big and, John so small that we naturally kind of gravitate towards that idea of father, son, especially with the Sarah Connor soliloquy embedded in our brain uh, leading up to that final moment. But yeah, I thought, I thought John's discovery was a great echo of what our discovery would be in trying to understand who this Terminator is. Totally agree, man. I totally agree. I I just, and I love it too. When he says, cool, my own Terminator. And I'm just like, dude, I want my own Terminator. So many people would be, but never mind. No, that's not what we do. We don't, we don't kill people. John taught me well. 
All right. So let's kind of roll into the ending a little bit and talk about this. Miles learns what Skynet will become, right? So Sarah goes after Miles, which I love that this part of the film exists, that Miles is a real person with a family. I love the way in which he's saved from Sarah's first attack on him. The fact that his son's remote controlled robot car bumps into him and he bends down. Right. I just think that there's some great imagery in that scene. And he's just a guy. He's just a creative family guy. Right. There's a Terminator driving by right now on a motorcycle. You hear that? What that makes me think about is how someone can be so passionate about their work. And he is literally creating something that the world has never seen. So think of this as like someone like a Steve Jobs, right? Our greatest minds in the tech world. And he has to personally destroy his creation before it quite gets to that point because of what someone tells him it's going to become. And my mind... I love that. I love that trip. I love the emotion of watching him and trying to wrap my head around what I would do if I had to destroy the things that I loved most, my creative side. And I think it makes for a really great paired ending with the actual, you know, T-800 slash T-1000 battle part. It doesn't make it, it doesn't make the ending of this movie nothing but one big action sequence. Yeah, I think that that scene with Miles felt more impactful for me this time around because of what I understand about the nature of creativity and the nature of discovery and wanting to give something that you feel like is important to the world. Because the fact is, there's a scene earlier with Miles and his wife, and she's basically trying to coerce him out of his chair from behind the computer to come spend time with her. And it's played in such a great way because he's like, I'm just, there's something amazing that's going on here. I am on the verge of something so incredible. And in no way in that scene or in the later scene, do we ever feel like Miles is egotistical, arrogant, overly ambitious in order to destroy anything in his path just so he can get there first. I genuinely feel like what he was doing, he felt like was going to be better for the world. And it made it that much more devastating when he realizes through this crazy amputation of of Schwarzenegger's arm that he is the author of the destruction of the world. And I love that he owns up. Well, he sort of owns up to it. And there's a great dialogue between he and Sarah. He says, look, I didn't know. I didn't know this was going to happen. And this is something that kind of irked me about Sarah. Again, all that being said about her is she said, yeah, the people that created the atomic bomb didn't know. And she's trying to lump him into this, rightly so. She knows what's going to happen. But I love that John steps in and goes, Mom, this isn't a productive way to do this. In other words, right. he's basically saying, shut up, you're not helping. Yep. And so I get that sympathy for for Miles. Not because I've created something amazing and I have to destroy it, but because of the fact that you're not telling someone who is doing something bad to start being good. You're telling someone who is genuinely trying to help the world that his effort is futile. Oh, that breaks my heart because he's probably thinking, well, what's next? 
if this is my life's work, what do I have next? So there's definitely some identity crisis that he's going to probably go through. He'll probably live with some kind of fear that whatever I come up with next, I mean, I can't do any research based on this idea and do any new discoveries because it could lead to this. So he's probably going to be living in a sense of somewhat kind of intellectual paranoia. Well, yeah. I mean, up until the point where he killed himself. And I think, I think that's what's so crazy to me. It's like, he's the one that has to destroy it. You know, he's not fighting T-1000, the robot from the future. He has Mm -hmm. to destroy his creation. He has to push the button. And that, like you said, that is so powerful to me. And it really did. It resonated with me big time this time around. And I, it's like a throwaway plot part that in the past, I never even remembered that much of. Mm -hmm. It just was like, oh yeah, I forgot about that guy when he showed up. And part of that is watching the movie as a teenager, you know, non-cinephile as of watching it now with a different perspective and all of this. But I'm glad that it, it really connected to you too it made his death and the sacrifice there that much more impactful because I felt like he was making a choice to say, I know that no matter what, there's always going to be something in my head that's going to potentially lead to that creation. And so I feel like it made his, his death that much more significant. Yeah. But then we also have the action side, right? Of the ending, which is obviously something we would want. We get T-1000, versus T-800, we get the big battle, the big final climax. We we wanted some way to know, like, how is how are we going to get rid of this villain that can't be killed? Like, there's got to be something crazy happen. And the moment you learn about the liquid nitrogen, it, I think it just gets so cool because you get that spark of creativity in your mind and you're like, oh, I bet that could do wonders, Right. And so it builds and it builds. And I just, I love how he goes out. I love the the trick T-1000 tries to pull, becoming Sarah Connor. I think that this is just one of the best action endings to a movie that has ever happened. It's got so much emotion to it. And that's obviously something you and I care about. I mean, it elevates it for us with John having to tell Arnold, you know, I know why you, or I'm sorry, Arnold telling John, I know why you cry. Like I had tears welling up in my own eyes. And for me, one thing that I really latched onto in this ending moment of T-800 about to lower himself down was he gives this quick shaking of the hand. He, he has this moment with Sarah and it's so subtle. It's not overly played. There's not this miraculous moment where they hug it out big time and she apologizes for all the evil, mean things she's said to him. But they just shake their hand and they acknowledge what the future is going to be and the fact that they work together to create it. And for me, it was literally almost as powerful as his goodbye to John because I had just watched that first movie and I had her whole arc in my mind. So... I think it's great. I love that it leaves us with a sense of hope and it does so with also giving us an iconic cultural badass moment of the thumbs up in the fire. Right. All that sequence from the moment that 
the liquid nitrogen moment happens to the melting <laughs> to the eventual what I call the explosive headshot or whatever, however you describe it, all that stuff just felt perfect. And it, I don't know that you could end a film a better way with that kind of pacing. It didn't feel long, didn't feel drawn out and the goodbyes could have lingered and they didn't. The, the hug to John and the handshake to Sarah were just long enough. And it felt just like a nice, I mean, the story beats were perfect for me and I don't know that I'd want a different ending. I, I, I like the fact that it does leave us hanging on saying the world's still messy, but it's a little bit better messy. <laughs> it's it's, we have the potential to get it a little bit cleaner now because we've taken this big step. Mm-hmm. And we haven't talked a ton about the cinematography. Well, really at all. We talked a little bit about visuals at the beginning and the special effects, but we haven't called out all of the amazing moments in this movie. But that headshot for me is one of them because of the way the camera shows when he gets shot going forward. And then we loop back behind him for a perspective from behind T-1000's head and we can see through the hole in his head. And I just thought that was badass. I'm going to just keep using that word. It reminded me a lot of the scene in District Nine when the the rocket is caught. <laughs> Very similar. Yeah, I was like, yeah. it was one of those moments where I was like, ooh, and because <laughs> you knew what to was going to, yeah. yeah. So it, I think that the battle between, I guess, the four of them, but really the T eight hundred and the T one thousand, will go down as probably one of the best. I don't know, dual fights, do du- du- two person, two duels, instances. duels, right? Yeah, in in cinematic history. Yeah, it was just well, everything was well earned. Well, it's interesting the way that this ends. So on the special edition, it gives us a an alternate epilogue, and we hear and see Sarah. She's recording and she's sitting on a bench and she's like some old woman, and the difference is that. It starts off with the same, you know, it talks about August 29th, 1997, came and went. Nothing much happened. Michael Jackson turned 40. There was no judgment day. She goes on to talk about how John becomes a senator and he helps the world in that way. I guess that's the theatrical epilogue, but the, or I'm sorry, that's the alternate epilogue for the special edition. But I actually prefer the original epilogue. Because I was wondering, as I was watching the special edition, I was like, this is not how I remember the movie ending. I thought that they rode off into the sunset and kind of had that almost Batman Dark Knight-like ending where it's ramping up to the boom and then the theme as they're speeding away. And so I looked it up, and sure enough, that original epilogue is so perfect to me. And it's, the unknown future rolls toward us. I face it for the first time with a sense of hope. Because if a machine, a Terminator, can learn the value of human life, maybe we can too. And it's perfect. It's concise. And I love that original one so much more. And I also think that it sets up what ends up happening in the universe a lot better as well. Because this alternate one doesn't make any sense. Because in Terminator 3, they immediately basically pretend that that alternate epilogue didn't happen. Because John definitely doesn't become a senator. (laughs) <laughs> I can assure you. So did you notice that at all? I'm just curious if you remembered the original one 
like yes. I did. I, I I had a little help from the internet, but there were there were several small moments from the director's cut that I wish weren't in there. That was one change I didn't like. The other the other change was Kyle's the dream with Sarah and Kyle. I thought that while it had some emotional impact, I think it took away from her hardcoreness in Terminator 2 as a whole, especially the line where Bean says, on your feet, soldier. And I thought that was just really a terrible line. I agree, I like- but it does also give us the one of the best lines in the whole series, too. There's and no it, fate? No fate? There is no fate, but what we make for ourselves. But again, that... <sighs> That's explained later. John explains it later to the Terminator. So fair enough. Yeah, it may have an impact, but it but it means just as much when he says it. So I I I didn't like that change. I think the better epilogue is the one from the theatrical cut because I think it fits tonally with the rest of the movie, where it's still messy, but there's hope. Whereas the first one basically says, Yep, we all moved on. And everything's perfect. Yeah. You know, I got drunk, but you know, life, life goes on and la 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 la. Well, it's kind of interesting to me that the, what I would say, unnecessary sequels, having just watched all three of them, again, I enjoy them all to some extent, some much less than others. Unfortunately, the one with all of the great actors in it, I didn't like as much, the one with Christian Bale. But the ending of Terminator 3, I don't know if you recall it, but it is actually pretty phenomenal and puts an interesting spin on the whole series. While they do undo that epilogue by not having John as a senator, the way that that film ends is staggering and kind of like, oh my gosh, I can't believe they went there. So it has some merit. And then there's the TV show, which I remember watching the first series of and thinking it was okay but it didn't blow me away. But I'm wondering, you know, especially with the news that I I believe there's rumors of a six Terminator movie eventually coming into production. How many more stories can you tell in this world? Like you're just continuing to reboot the timeline to put it at risk. And is it degrading the idea that James Cameron came up with for them to keep doing this? Or do you think that there might actually be a good story in there somewhere? I have a comment and a suggestion to that. The comment is, I think that the more you jack with something, the more you ruin the original property. We talked about this on our Toy Story trilogy episodes. We asked the question, does it need a fourth movie? Because there's a talk about a fourth one. And you and I both adamantly were against that because it devalues the trilogy's ending, the completion of that story. and. Terminator 1 and 2, and in my opinion, Godfather 1 and 2, give a great argument for the fact that movies don't have to be in trilogies, that you can tell a story in two parts and let it be complete. And I don't want to think about Rise of the Machines or Genesis, or I don't know what the fourth one is, but my suggestion would be if you want to go back to this franchise, go before Go, I I don't know how you can do that, but go before the events that originally took place. Go, I guess you can't because all this stuff happens in the future. And so I guess as I'm thinking through this, no, don't, don't touch it anymore. Yeah, I'm with you. I think it's been explored. So I think you have, 
you have just the what you have is good. Terminator yeah. one and two, and that's it. Yeah, I think it speaks to the idea that sometimes the creators hang on too long, and I understand that that draw that they must have to want to continue to find a way to tell a story in this world that they've made. But there are stories that have a wonderful end and a wonderful beginning. And that's good enough is just to be that concise done property. And so I kind of hope that they don't ever get around to rebooting it personally. I love it the way it is. And I've, developed a new love for it that I did not realize I had. I, I really did, Patrick. I This is way up there for me, way up there. And, and I'm a sci-fi lover and it just is soaring up my chart of favorite movies. I can't wait to watch it again. I couldn't believe how much I loved it. So thank you listeners from the bottom of my heart for picking mm-hmm. Terminator 2 over all those sappy other Mother's Day possibilities. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. Badass. All right. Well, Patrick, <laughs> where can people find you if they would like to connect with you online and, and or continue talking with you about Terminator 2 or any other movie uh, at any time they want? Come check me out on Facebook and Twitter. I am at Shoeless Patch, S-H-O-E-L-E-S-S. I'm easy to find. Just plug that into Twitter or Facebook and you should be able to find me in one of those two places lurking around. Um, If you want to hear more of my voice, you'll be able to hear it in a couple of days as we are diving back into the theater and we are going to be covering Solo, a Star Wars story. I know that Aaron has been itching and I mean itching to talk about this movie. So (laughs) we'll get a chance to do that in a couple of days. And stay tuned because coming up, we will have a brand new Connecting with the Classics. American Graffiti is going to be talked about. Aaron and Don are going to be talking about that. And then we have another mini-sode coming up on First Reformed. So be sure to stay with us as we continue to push out more content for your listening pleasure. Yeah, and it's cool because those are all very different. If you look at that lineup, I love that about our show, Patrick. I love that we are covering Terminator 2. And then Solo, a brand new Star Wars movie. And then American Graffiti, a classic, which I know you love. Mm -hmm. And then First Reformed, this new, completely different. It's an indie. It's a slow burn. It's a psychological film. It's an interesting lineup of films. And it's neat that we can do all of them. We aren't stuck doing one thing. That would be kind of boring. Yeah. Well, if you want to talk to me, listeners, you can do that usually on Twitter is one of the best places at Feelin' Film Aaron or through our main Twitter account at Feelin' Film. You can also find me in our amazing Facebook group. We are pushing up to a new milestone, so come join it and help be part of that milestone. If that's not an incentive, I really don't know what it is, but honestly, it is a great place. We talk about movies all day, every day with other cinephiles, blockbuster lovers, you name it, we've got them and they want to chat. Lastly, if you've enjoyed what you heard, think about leaving us a review on iTunes, on Stitcher, on Spotify, wherever it is that you're listening to this podcast. We would love it if you would just help let other listeners know that you enjoyed it, and maybe they can discover us too and become part of the emotional conversation. Until next time, stay positive. And keep feeling filmed.